the church. Luke chapter 6, uh, this is the concluding paragraphs of this great sermon uh, in Matthew. It's called the Sermon on the Mount here. It's called the Sermon on the Plain. And uh, we do well to pay attention to the word of the Lord this morning. Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 43. No good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, Immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he bless all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. Amen. We're aware of not so much floods uh, uh, in America, but in the world, we're aware that Turkey experienced a couple of great earthquakes in terms of their magnitude and power. Great and terrible, the death toll uh, in the tens of thousands of people. If you look at a map, and maybe even the map in, in the back of your Bible, you can see what the region is because the, the point of Cyprus kind of points up the corner of the Mediterranean into that region of southeastern Turkey and northern Syria uh, where the earthquakes have struck. But one of the headlines from that region was just amazing to hear. According to NBC News, Residents and officials say Erzin, E-R-Z-I-N, suffered no deaths and saw no buildings collapse. A small city in the midst of the earthquake zone did not see death and destruction. Not a single life was lost. Erzin is in southern Hatay province, only 70 miles from the quake's epicenter, which stretched quite a distance. The news report said in cities farther from the center, as well as those close by, like Osmanidye, just 12 miles away from Erzin, homes have been reduced to rubble. Whole towns destroyed. But there sat Erzin. Why? Why? The question comes. You want to read the rest of the article. They credit the longstanding policy not to allow construction that violated the country's building codes. In many other places, corruption and carelessness or expediency had cut corners. 
One Erzin official said, we know we are in an earthquake area. And he said the current mayor and the previous ones would not allow buildings that failed to meet construction codes, would not allow them to be put up. And if they were put up, they were torn down. They took that seriously. And the results were this town stood and has now become a refuge for tens of thousands of her neighbors. You can look it up. It's a fantastic story. The point of that opening illustration and the point of the sermon is that foundations make all the difference. In buildings, in earthquake zones, and in living your life on planet Earth. Whether you're young or old, what is your foundation? What is under your feet as you live in this world? If your life is built on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the right foundation, and you will stand not only in this life, but at the last day. How can you know if your foundation is on the rock? That's a pretty good question. We all want it to be right, and we want it to be on the rock. How can we know? Well, the texts before us today from Luke chapter 6 answer both questions. These texts point us to Jesus Christ and tell us how we might know about our foundation. And Jesus tells us plainly. We will be known by our fruit and we will know our own heart by the life we live. Let's unpack that a bit. We have these two paragraphs at the end of the sermon. Um, the last two paragraphs of this Sermon on the Plain. And the first thing I want to point out is uh, what I'm calling the root of the matter. Isn't that what we see in this first paragraph beginning in verse 43? Jesus is talking about trees, fruit trees. Uh, if you know the scientific name for the study of trees, den dendrology, something like that, it comes from the Greek word dendros for tree. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its fruit. And then he goes on to make the comparison to people. And the last line helps us, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The root of the matter is what's beneath the surface. Whether you're talking about a tree, it's, 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 a, it's biological DNA, I guess. It's roots determine its fruits. With the person, what's in your heart or do you have a new heart determines how you live your life. A tree is known by its fruit. That's the identification process. Now, um, I can probably spot an apple tree best when the apples are hanging off it. If I go down to Bowman's or uh, Riverview Orchards and walk around, I can tell an apple tree when I see it and a, and a straggler of something else when it's there. I can tell them apart. I can't quite tell the Macintosh from the Red Delicious or all the different brands, so I'm really happy they put up signs. Uh, Red Delicious is my personal favorite. That's just the way I am. A tree is known by its fruit, and we can't expect good fruit from bad trees. You can't get apples from a tree that's not an apple tree. And some trees may be beautiful to look at, but they don't necessarily produce the best fruit. The tree talk that Jesus gives here, in this context, he's teaching his disciples and those around him who were listening, wasn't meant so that his disciples could go around with their 
microscope or their uh, magnifying glass and examine everybody's fruit. Okay, you, front and center, show me your fruit. No, what Jesus is doing here is for us to examine ourselves, which is where he left off in the previous paragraph, if you remember a couple weeks ago. First, take the log out of your own eye to help someone else. Always begin with self-examination. Know your fruit. Examine yourselves and don't poke others first. Trees are known by their fruit. People are known by their fruit and their deeds. Verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. We have to be careful here, not turn this around, to say that the Bible teaches, if you do good, God will accept you. That's not what this is saying. This is a diagnostic question. How do I know if I am truly a follower of Jesus, if I built my life on the rock, if I've come to him and I've been made new in him, if I've been made into a real Christian, do I have Christian fruit? The text does not say, if you copy the other Christians and hang some apples on your limbs, you'll become a Christian or an apple tree. No, it's talking about the principle of what comes out reveals what's within. What is in the well of your heart will show up in the bucket of your speech, said one anonymous preacher. In this sermon, Jesus spoke often about good. Let's just survey quickly chapter 6. Look back at verse 9. Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? Jesus wanted to awaken the religious folks to the very purpose that they were called to perform if they were in a right relationship with God. Shouldn't we do good? Verse 9. Down in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And again, in verse 33, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Your goodness has to exceed the goodness of your neighbor. Verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and land, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great and... Verse 35 says, you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. We're not just looking for accessories. Is my Christian life looking okay? We're looking for something essential, something, an ID, uh, an identification that gets to the core of the matter. Are you a Christian or not? If you can be such a person that does good and that characterizes your life, it tells something about your heart. In verse 35, you will be sons. You'll be known as sons of the Most High. It will be seen that your roots are healthy. Your heart is new in Christ. People are known by their fruits. Roots and hearts it, it, it pays to be very clear who is this good person, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart. Well, that's not the natural person, because in Adam, all of us have died. 
From the moment you're born, sorry parents, your child has that bent towards sin. We all have that. And you will not have to teach your child how to say no. They will discover that all on their own. We don't start with a blank slate. We start with the bent from Adam and Eve. But we become this good person when we are born again. When you are a Christian, you have the capacity to say no to sin and yes to good deeds. You can say no to temptation and yes to your Father's will. And so in the language and teaching of Jesus here, he's trying to define what he's looking for from his followers. He had just uh, recently called the the 12 to follow him and uh, was teaching them the Beatitudes and all these things. And as he ends this sermon, he's saying, okay, if you're my followers, this is a way to see if you are truly among us. The good person needs a new heart. That's what the Old Testament looked forward to at the coming of Jesus. When the Messiah comes, when the new covenant comes, something will will be significantly changed in your heart. You might be aware of these verses, Jeremiah 31. You're welcome to turn and, and maybe mark them in your Bible so you can find them again on your own. The sweet promises looking ahead. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's talking about the new birth, the conversion. A new heart, new eyes. It's echoed in Ezekiel, another prophet from that same era. Ezekiel 36, beginning in 26, is very explicit. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you... To walk in my statutes, that's doing good, and be careful to obey my rules. God will bring that about. In verse 28 there, you shall dwell in the land that I give your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. When we receive the new heart, when you're converted, if you are a Christian, it's going to show, it's going to bear some fruit. And people will see it, and you'll see it, and you'll have some assurance. Jesus is saying this to those who are following him. He says, look for your fruit. If you don't see the good fruit, check the root. Get right with God. Hear the good news. It's been several weeks since we looked at Luke chapter 4, but Jesus in the synagogue had taken the scroll of Isaiah. And read these words which explained what he had come to do. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year when men and women would get new hearts. And be set free. Cultivated, planted. Gentiles even would be grafted into Israel so the people of God would grow and would bear fruit. 
So let me pause and say, Jesus wants us all first to know him through the new birth, to repent of hanging apples and peaches and pears on yourself by copying other Christians. He wants you to come to Christ, follow him, repent and believe that good news. Let Jesus give you a new heart. After teaching about these realities, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, uh, pointing to the root of the matter, Jesus pauses and asks a diagnostic question. This is a very pointed question. Indeed, it almost sounds like a rebuke. We only have the printed words. We don't know the volume or the intonation Jesus used. But he asks this diagnostic question. And as I read it, and as I read it aloud in just a moment, I was thinking back in this little village in Turkey. Some guy was busy building. Didn't want to put any iron rebarb in his concrete. But the building inspector comes up and says, why aren't you doing what we said? Why aren't you heeding the building codes? You see... This very sermon and this very day, this very hour of hearing the word of God, the Lord is checking on you. Because earthquakes come and floods come when we least expect them. Sometimes they come in our body or in our mind, in our experience, in our family tree or in our career. I hope everyone hearing this sermon today hears these diagnostic questions and the responses. Jesus asks in verse 46, why do you, looking at his followers, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? He's inspecting, he's asking for a check. Have you mixed your concrete right? Do you have your house built on the rock? You know where it's going in the next paragraph. He asks the question. Let's break it down. Let's break it down. The first half of the question, why do you call me Lord? That's a good thing to call Jesus Lord. Let's, Let's not overlook that. The people that are calling him Lord are people that came out to hear him preach. I would love to have people come and hear me preach. And I welcome people sitting in the audience, even though they might not agree with me. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord? Well, he was Lord. John 13, 13. You call me teacher and Lord, said Jesus, and you are right, for so I am. John 13, 13. Jesus is due that respect. He is due the attention of men and women and boys and girls. If you hear what Jesus is saying, pay attention. If you read the word of God, pay attention. It's good and right to seek the Lord to hear him and honor him. But it doesn't end with hearing or reading. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, comma, and not do the things I've taught you? That's the question. It's that second part of the question that gets to the heart of the matter. He's poking. He's shown up on your construction site. He's saying, okay, stop the work. 
I have a question for you followers, even those who clap for the sermon. Why? Why are you here? Why are you using my name and calling me Lord, but not doing anything about it? How did the previous paragraph end? I mean, going back to the previous section. Do you see back in verse 42? It's been a couple weeks. Jesus was teaching about uh, brothers helping each other with their sin. Take the log out of your own eye. He says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck that is out of your brother's eye. What do we note from that? Among those who were listening to Jesus on that day were some hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? Somebody who said, oh, I'm a follower. I'm a Christian. Yeah, I've heard all your sermons. I've been to all your concerts. I got your autograph back in Capernaum. He's, He's talking to the people that are in front of him. And some he calls hypocrite. You're here and you're doing religious stuff, but you're not doing what I say, how I say, for the reasons I say. There's a disconnect. You're a bad tree and your fruit's not very good. That's why Jesus is ending this sermon, clarifying this most essential question. Are you truly a disciple? This diagnostic question. Why would you take my name on your lips but not do what I command you to do? In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we could call it a parallel passage. Matthew 7 verse 21 has this additional sentence according to Matthew. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? He goes on. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You can learn the Christian lingo. You may have even said, hallelujah, praise the Lord. You may carry your Bible. Your lips and your looks say Christian. But you know what? Jesus sees to the heart of the matter. And he's asking, what's with that? He's asking rather than condemning because he wants to draw you closer into the genuineness of being born again. And oh, does America need to hear this? The land of nominal believers. How many people would identify in the U.S. of A. as Christians in some form or another? A lot of people raise their hand. But how many people do what Jesus says to do? Reminds me of John Bunyan. Do you remember John Bunyan? He wrote a famous book. The second best-selling book in the history of humanity next to the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress. It's still out there. It's still going. It's a wonderful allegory. It's a story where the characters all have these meaningful names. The main character's name is Christian, and he walks from the city of destruction to the heavenly city. So it, it's, it's a picture of the Christian life, and he meets people. He meets challenges. He, you know, He goes up the hill of difficulty. He comes to Vanity Fair. He's tempted. It's a wonderful read, especially if you're a young believer, if you've never looked at this. Yeah, Bunyan gets a little preachy, but that's okay. It's well done. And these characters are memorable. He has a character called Talkative. Anybody remember Talkative? I'll tell you a little bit about him. Talkative is a man whom Christian, and Christian had a companion named Faithful, 
at that very moment. Christian and faithful, they, they meet this guy named Talkative as they're uh, coming out of the valley of the shadow of death and heading towards Vanity Fair. So it's a little bit of a respite. And they meet him. He's also from the city of destruction. Christian was very familiar with him. And Christian knew that Talkative loves talking. See how the name gives it away? He loves talking about spirituality, religion, but it hasn't affected his harder lifestyle. In fact, Christian knew him back in the city. He knew that he was notorious for drinking too much and mistreating his family and servants. So Christian tries to explain that to faithful. Here's, here's a sample of how Bunyan writes. Christian is speaking. He talks about prayer, repentance, faith, and the new birth, but he only knows how to talk about them. The soul of religion is the practical part. Talkative isn't aware of this. He thinks that hearing and saying will make him a good Christian. And so he deceives his own soul. Hearing is only like the sowing of the seed. Talking is insufficient to prove that fruit is truly in the heart and life. And we can be assured that at the day of doom, men will be judged according to their fruit. The end of the world is compared to a harvest. And you know, workers at the harvest don't care about anything but fruit. Nothing will be accepted that is not of faith. Christian talks on and on for a couple pages to faithful, explaining talkative. So faithful tries to engage talkative to help him. He wants to talk about the gospel's transformative power and Talkative starts to avoid the subject, and then he parts ways. Because he just wants to talk. Jesus' question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do? He can hear the talk, but he's looking for the fruit that will reveal the earth, the heart. This morning in this congregation, present and online, I want to ask... Is there a Mr. Talkative here? Jesus addressed his first audience, assuming someone there needed to hear this. And throughout the centuries, there's always the case. Even among the twelve, there was someone who was not walking with Christ. Philip Ryken says, the real proof of our discipleship is not whether we hear what Jesus has to say, but whether we actually do the things he tells us. Listening is not enough. Practice the walk of faith. The fruit of the Spirit is what is looked for. It's a heart that believes and obeys that matters more than a professing mouth. Our mouths should profess faith in Christ. We should tell others of Christ, but it can't stop at our lips. The Lord sees the heart. J.C. Ryle, the old bishop of Liverpool, who's such a keen commentator, he said, obedience is the only sound evidence of saving faith. You can tell your testimony. Oh, yeah, back in 1978, I did this and I did that and this was great and I always remember it. J.C. Ryle says obedience is the only sound evidence of saving faith. Not your testimony. And the talk of lips is worse than useless, he says, if it is not accompanied by sanctification of life. 
This may just be a whole new window that's opening to you of what the Christian message is. It is be born again. It is repent and believe. Come to Jesus. But then test to see that you are rooted in Jesus, that you are building on the rock by what you see in your life. Our justification will produce sanctification. So this closing paragraph, Jesus gives us two responses that are common to him. He gives us another little uh, parable about two builders, if you will. And we can read that starting here in uh, verse uh, 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. And that's the the clue that he's going to give you a parable. And a parable is a picture of something everybody understands in the physical world around them that illustrates a spiritual principle so he begins verse 48 he the man who hears and obeys is like a man building a house who digs deep and laid the foundation on the rock and when a flood arose the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built so the first of the two responses is the wise builder the wise builder, and his foundation is on the person and work of Jesus Christ. He had come to Christ, he had heard Christ, and he believes and obeys. He does what Christ calls him to do. And in the parable, that hard work of digging, the rearranging, uh, the essential connection to the bedrock is what the difference is. Both men, the wise and foolish, have an edifice. They build something from ground up. It probably looks the same. But it's the connection to the rock. And many commentators, you can read about this here or in Matthew's version, uh, they all talk about who would be so foolish as to build on sand and not on rock. My friends, we need to know the Middle East. And what the original hearers of Jesus would have understood, you don't have outcroppings like Vermont or New Hampshire granite uh, where you can just see the, the rock. You have to check. A lot of places in the Middle East, they're dry until the seasonal rains come. These wadis, these riverbeds they look like, all hard-pressed because of the baking of the sun. But if a river comes, that sand is going to be in motion. So we're not talking about some idiot who just builds on a sand dune in California. We're talking about somebody who sees ground but doesn't properly dig and prepare and make sure. The wise man does that. Christ is his rock. I'm reminded of the final phrase of Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, comma, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's always been an image of God, whether we talk about God as, as a mountain or our rock. The wise man sees that and builds his life on that. And when the flood comes, boom, it hits the house. The streams are pushing. They're crashing against it. But it doesn't move. The house stands. And that reminds me of Psalm 1. Do you remember the, the key psalm to the whole book, Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who doesn't do this, but who attends to God's word. And it describes him. He shall be like a tree. 
planted by streams of living waters, leaves don't wither. There's a sense of permanence and blessing and sustenance in the one who builds his life on the word of God. That's what Jesus is pointing to. But then he also says there's a foolish response. The unwise builder, he has no foundation. He has a life without Christ. He had come, he had heard, but he doesn't do what the Lord had said. He likely said, hey, the ground at the present moment looks pretty solid. Maybe he poked down a few feet. Yeah, I think that'll do. And he was excited to take what he had learned and do something with it, at least above ground. He wants to build this house on what seems firm enough, but the floods expose the lack of foundation and the building falls. Do you ever realize that Jesus ends this sermon, at least according to Luke, with the crash and ruin of a man's house and life? Interesting way to end a sermon. Kind of scary. We try not to scare people in the kingdom because that's not how you get in. Scaring people with the truth is part of the process, but you always want someone to turn their eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, to repent and believe, to reach out by faith. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to Christ and his cross we cling. This foolish response, this foolish builder, Jesus tells us about so that we don't go there. He has people sitting around hanging on his words and he's looking them in the face saying, will you build your life on this rock? Take up your cross and follow me. No one comes to the Father but by me. You can't live the Christian life apart from Christ. Because a flood will come. Before we leave this point, let me tell you, the flood will come. The earthquake will come. You know, those people in the village of Erzin in Turkey knew they were in an earthquake-prone area. They'd seen previous earthquakes. I remember my childhood earthquakes that devastated other parts of Turkey. So they prepared for what was unseen, but they knew was likely. I can tell you with biblical confidence, your life will be tested. And if it isn't significantly tested in this world, you will one day stand before the throne of God himself, which will make all of us tremble. Whether in the affairs of this life or at the day of judgment, will you stand? Whatever we build on that foundation will be tested whether it's wood, hay, or stubble, or whatever, it will be tested. Our works will be tested, but only to the point that the fruit reveals the root. Yes, we are in Christ. In closing, I wanted to remind you of the essential things here. Three things for professing Christians. Remember that we're we're preaching in the choir today. Christian, let your words be matched by your life. Christian, let your words be matched by your life. Yeah, Christians sometimes 
We need to focus as Christ's disciples on doing what he commanded. And that should be reflected in our speech. Secondly, Christian, let your new heart produce much good. Let your new heart produce many good works. And I have to say, far too many evangelicals, folks like us, recoil when they're called to do good works. It sounds like maybe the liberals' gospel. Well, that's not the gospel I'm preaching. The gospel is repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to test yourself, to probe that foundation, are you built on the rock? Is there any fruit in your life? For every seed that truly germinates, every gospel seed that brings about the new birth will bear fruit. Maybe 10, 20, 30, 60, 100 fold. In the parable Jesus told, so there's a variety of levels of fruit. But if there's life, there will be fruit. And we call that good works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 talk about being saved by grace, not by your works. Amen. But verse 10 is often not included. Paul goes on to write in Ephesians 2, 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus as Christians for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christians should be do-gooders. That's us. We need to have accomplishments that get the attention of the world and bring praise to our Father. We need to bear fruit. And and if, if you want to start simply with the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5 verse 22 will give you the list. Those spiritual qualities. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that's just the start. Do you see any of that? Well, you should see that in your life, even as you interact with the world. It's hard to express kindness by yourself. It's hard to profess and display faithfulness if you're not tossed by the world or passing through Vanity Fair. Is there fruit? Are there good works? It's not just enough to read your Bible at home and know the truth. We must do what Jesus says we should do. And that's different for each of us, but there should be fruit and good works. Finally, Christian, let your house be in order for that final day. Let your house be in order for that final day. I don't know about you, but when I hear a prayer request of someone all of a sudden taken ill, or diagnosed with such horrible news as we've heard in recent weeks. It gives me pause. Is my house in order? If such a storm came upon me, is my trust in Christ? Or am I simply believing that all these blessings of health, wealth, and prosperity, and life uh, are what I live for? Do I live for my Lord And his blessings are secondary. Let your house be in order for the final day. Is Christ your rock? Before I close, let me tell you about a fellow named Edward Mote. M-O-T-E, strange name. He was born back in uh, London back in January of 1797. Just short of the... New century, 1797. His parents managed a pub and often left Edward to his own devices, playing in the street. Speaking of those childhood years, he once said, 
So ignorant was I that I did not know there was a God, Edward Mote. But through the preaching of Reverend Hyatt at Tottenham Court Road Chapel, Edward underwent a great spiritual change. He was converted at the preaching of the gospel. And at age 18, he started living that different life. He was trained as a cabinet maker and worked in London for 37 years. Only in his his 50s did he enter the ministry. He became a pastor, a Baptist pastor back then in England. Kind of rare. He died in 1874. One of the things he left amongst his sermons and his papers were some hymn lyrics. One of them I think you know. Edward Mote, who came, he heard, and he obeyed. And he wrote a hymn. My hope is built on nothing less, said the cabinet maker who belonged to Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I Dare not trust the sweetest frame. That's architectural language. But wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, as the Lord Jesus spoke about the crash of the foolish builder's house. That was a parable, but he looked into faces who were listening but not doing. His words were a call to repent and believe and obey. Father, today may the words of Christ bear fruit unto salvation. May this passage of the New Testament, these words of Jesus, awaken some from their nearness to the kingdom and bring them into the kingdom. Well, Father, we need more like Edward Mote, who's awakened and believes your word and gives his life to it. Father, many here are striving and serving you. Encourage them in the work. But Lord, if any are falling short, if their roots have not reached the rock, May there be no more delay. May they come to Christ. May they sing with Edward. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. Father, may we be yours in your service joyfully until Christ comes again and claims us for his own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.